I was in Oklahoma, um, working at a church there, I, that was the first place I worked at right after uh, graduating college. And actually, uh, I started working at this church before I actually graduated. Um, I had done an internship over uh, my last summer in school, and uh, they wanted me to come back and work there full time, but I still had uh, a little bit of schooling to finish up, and uh, my new wife still had some uh, schooling to finish up. So we would travel down there that last school year once a month until graduation um, when we would move down there and be there full time. Now, uh, after we had moved down there to be there full time, I was there for about 10 minutes and I had a group of parents come into my office and work their way around the boxes that I still had to unpack there. And they all came, uh, about five or six of them, and a couple of them had their arms folded in front of me and said, we need to talk. Um, Which I was glad to have the conversation because I was pretty naive then. And they said, hey, we want to know, what are you going to do for us? And I said, well, what do you mean, what am I going to do for you? Um, I was here to do uh, youth ministry. Um, and so in this church, it meant I was over uh, kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And they said, well, um, you're the youth minister. Um, you need to do something for parents. You need to help us out. Well, what do you want me to help you out with? Well, we need, uh, we need you to, uh, how about lead a class for parents? I said, oh, Okay. Um, now, you got to understand, I was highly qualified to do this, okay? I had just graduated Bible college. I had been married for almost two years, um, and I had no kids of my own. So I was the perfect person to come tell you how to parent. And so they came into my office and said, this is what we want to do. The way we kind of formed all of this is we were going to do this class on a Saturday morning. It was going to be kind of a seminar. Um, And to tell you that I was nervous would be a vast understatement. I was incredibly nervous to do this. I have been a parent now for more than 13 years, and I still do not feel qualified to tell anybody how to parent. Back then, I didn't know what it was that I was supposed to say. So I spent a ton of time doing research. I spent a ton of time crafting what I thought was going to be the perfect messages, talking about the exact topics we needed to talk about. And I was going to tell you how to be the perfect parent of your teenager, which I was one just a few years before that. When we were done, I felt like I had done the the best job I could possibly do. I had done the most research I could possibly uh, research, and I had crafted the best messages I could possibly craft. I thought I asked the best questions. I thought I talked about the best topics that we could do. Um, It seemed like everything went okay. Until I left, I was leaving. We had this big fellowship hall. You go down this hallway. If you turn left, you could go to the gym. If you turn right, you could go to the offices and head toward where the sanctuary was going to be. But right before you got to that turn um, were the restrooms. And the restrooms had doors that were fairly thin. And I was standing in the hallway collecting a few things, and I heard a bunch of moms talking in the bathroom. And, man, did they hammer me. That Nick knows nothing about what he's talking about. I can't believe he would ever have the gall to say what it is that he said. I can't believe that he's that arrogant, blah, 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 all these things. Now, I got to tell you, I stopped in that hallway, and I was devastated. I in no way wanted to do this seminar. I did not want to tell. All I want to do is hang out with the kids. I didn't want to hang out with your kids as parents. Um, And when I heard them hammering me, 
I learned a couple of really important lessons. The first lesson I learned through this is we can be the masters of chewing up our own, can't we? I mean, sometimes we get this critiquing and criticizing thing all mixed up. We think we are saying something that's really, really valuable, and what we're doing is we're chopping down someone who needs encouragement more than they need our criticizing. And so I learned that. that, that, that that's something I, I've seen and witnessed in the church, not just then, but I've seen that happen a lot of times. Sometimes we're, te- we're tearing people down. We don't even realize we're tearing people down. The second thing I learned as I was standing out in that hallway waiting for these moms to walk out of the bathroom so that they could see that I heard what they had said was that I learned that they were actually right. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what it was like to be a parent. I didn't know what the pressures were. I didn't know what it was like to try to guide someone in a culture that is constantly changing and you feel responsible for the things that are going on there. I didn't know what all of those pressures were. I didn't know how difficult it was to be in that role. I didn't know that. I didn't have the experience. And man, there are some things, you all know this, in life that only experience can teach you about. There are some lessons that we learn that can only happen through bruises and scars and wrinkles and calluses and gray hair. And there are some things that we can only learn by walking through those things. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 37 this morning, and David is going to tell us about that kind of experience. David is going to talk about some stuff in Psalm 37 that, man, only his life's experience can possibly teach you the full lesson that comes with that. Experience can be a valuable tool. But the catch to all that is not all of us have that experience yet. And so we're sitting here wondering, what do I do if I don't have that experience? I mean, some of us have been in here, we've applied for a job, and we've been passed over, even though we could probably do that job really well, but the employer is saying, yeah, we're looking for someone with experience. And you're going, yeah, that's where you come in. Like, I will have experience if you hire me, right? Like, I will get that. So what do we do with that? Well, I think as we look at this psalm, one of the things that we can do with a lack of experience is pay attention to the one who has been through it. Pay attention to the one who has that gray hair. Pay attention to the one that has the calluses and the wounds from walking through life's most difficult places. You look at Psalm chapter 37. uh, David kind of says something similar to this in verse 25. This is what he says. I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Can you hear kind of the the resignation that that David has in that sort of the sighing that he does? Man, I've been young, but I'm old now. I've been through it. Uh, Some of the things that that are really, really difficult and some of the stuff that you feel like is going to be really, really tough, that, that, man, it doesn't seem fair right now. Listen, I've been there, David says. I've been young. I've been in that exact spot. But no, I'm old now. I've made it through. And I have some things, some, some wisdom to impart on you. 
So I think it's important that we lean in to David's insight here. We, we pay attention to some of the things that he's going to be reflecting on, that, he, that he's going to be reminiscing about. And there's a lot of things that happen in Psalm 37. We don't have time to go through all 40 verses of Psalm 37, but I think it's important that we kind of see the big umbrella of this. What big experience, David, do you have that I need to pay attention to? And kind of the umbrella of what David is teaching through Psalm 37 is that, hey, it may look like there are people who are immoral and succeeding in their immorality, and it may feel like you are doing everything right and losing, but man, hang on. Just hang on a second. Pay, learn from my, my mistakes. Learn from my wisdom here. Learn from my experience with this. And so there's a big question that we're going to ask. What do you do when it looks like the bad guys are winning and the good guys aren't? Now, understand when we say bad guys and good guys, that's, that's really a matter of perspective, isn't it? I, I've grown up a Royals fan my entire life. Everybody's a bad guy. We are always losing, right? We always think we're the good guy. We always think that when we lose, man, that means there's some kind of evil force that's overcoming right now. It's a matter of perspective here. But what I'm talking about is how do we respond when we feel like we do everything we can to do what is right, yet we're the ones that seem to be getting penalized about this. But those who cheat, those who take shortcuts, or those who don't seem to have an ounce of character seem to prosper in everything. Maybe your neighbor doesn't just cheat the system, but they brag about the shortcuts that they've taken in their taxes. And their home is loaded with the finest of everything, and they're going to be on vacation in the most luxurious places. And then you look at your own home, and you sit there and go, man, Goodwill would reject my furniture. My, my, my car is on its second 100,000 miles. I can't even afford to stay home on vacation let alone go anywhere on vacation. This doesn't seem right here. Why does it look like that someone who is doing immoral things is prospering and I'm the one that's trying to do everything right? I'm trying to be as moral as I possibly can, but I can't get ahead in anything. Maybe you're single and you're desperately trying to follow the Lord and you're desperately trying to do everything he wants you to do but you just can't find the right person. You're looking for the person to do life with and you just can't find her or you just can't find him. But you have a friend who will compromise on every moral standard and every relationship that she has and she seems to be satisfied with everybody that she gets to do life with. And God, why? Why in the world can I not get ahead in this? I've had friends who have tried to have uh, uh, who have tried to get pregnant and tried to have babies um, and have children of their own and they've done everything right according to scripture. But then I turn and look and I see kids that were in my youth group who would get pregnant before they, before they graduate high school. And those friends who are trying to do things right go, why do they get to do this? Why do they get to be blessed with this and I don't, Lord? How come they get to seem to be like that they're getting ahead and I'm not? Pastor Stephen Cole talks about an experience he's, he's had with this. And this is what he said said, I've had a personal experience with losing while the bad guys win. I'm not in the social security system, so I have to set aside something for my retirement. It's not much, 
It's not even enough at this point to live on for more than a year. But my wife and I were not being greedy or stirring up treasures on earth. We give generously to the Lord's work each month. But we both lost a major portion of our retirement fund and 15 years equity in our home due to two separate instances of being defrauded by crooked men who are doing quite well for themselves right now. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it pays to do well, does it? Or to do good or to be good, does it? When the morally bankrupt seem to prosper and the innocent are the ones that seem to be suffering, the temptation is to doubt God. And that is overwhelming sometimes. Now this is true if you're the good guy or the bad guy, isn't it? If you're the good guy and you're seeing what David calls as the wicked who uh, are prospering, who are succeeding, who are getting ahead in life, you sit there and go, God, I don't know what plan you have, but it doesn't seem to be working and they seem to be succeeding at something. And the temptation then is to doubt him and to start practicing what they're practicing. But it's true also if you're the one that's wicked, isn't it? You taste immediate success and you taste immediate victory and you go, man, this is working out pretty well for me. Why would I ever go back to those things in that ancient book? So the temptation is to doubt, and we're overwhelmed with this. And if we're not careful, we'll look at God and just say, man, forget it. I'm with them. I'm doing it this way now. Your way is broken and not working. Well, I think it would be prudent on our part to pay attention to David's experience. Man, David's been there. He had been there. By the time he started writing this psalm, he had been through some of that. He was anointed to be the next king when he was in his teens, but he spent his entire time in his 20s running away from those who were chasing him away from God's ordination there. And while he was running away, we read of one incident where he runs into this man named Nabal. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. He runs into this guy named Nabal. Nabal is a successful farmer and shepherd. And David, I think, has kind of a kinship with these guys. He was a shepherd too. And so he sees Nabal. Nabal's so successful, he hires workers to work his land and to work his farm. Well, David has some jobs that he needs help with. And so he goes and and, and he talks to Nabal. He gets some of his workers. And David says, hey, I'm going to help these guys out. I'm going to put them to work. I'm going to pay them. And I'm going to bring them back to you. They're going to even be better workers. And that's exactly what what he does. David does everything right. He lives up to his word. And he sends these guys back, and he asks for nothing from Nabal except for, hey, Nabal, can you give us a meal? Man, you got so much. We're a little hungry right now. we just done this big, giant work. We have all uh, just done the work that we're exhausted. Will you help us out with this? And when Nabal receives word that all David wants is a meal in return for bringing back his workers and bringing back uh, some extra with them, Nabal goes, who are you? If you want something to eat, man, go get your own farm. Why should I give you any of my stuff? We worked for this. Why should I give any of that to you? And we read in the text that David in his youth started steaming. He was red hot and angry about this situation. And I got to wonder, as we look at Psalm 37, if David was thinking back on an incident like that, saying, man, I've been there. I've seen the wicked prosper. I've seen those, uh, those who are experiencing success, 
even though their morality is so bankrupt and so dry. I've been there. And I got to wonder, was he thinking about this when he was writing Psalm 37? Because it's through David's insight and it's through his reflection that we learn how to carry on and to even grow in the face of personal injustice. So let's look at Psalm 37. Let's look at this. Psalm 37 has 40 verses. We talked about this. And this is another psalm that's an acrostic poem or an acrostic song. Andy talked to us about Psalm 119 that is, uh, that's the same type of thing. That every stanza or every verse will start with a, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then the next one will start with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And what, if you actually did a big study on psalms, there's nine psalms that, that do this, that are acrostic poems. Psalm 37 is one of them. Psalm 119 is one of them. Psalm 9 and 10 and the 25th and the 34th. Psalm 111, Psalm 112, and Psalm 145 all utilize this technique to convey a message that the whole point of using an acrostic poem or a creative way of conveying these means is to draw the reader in and to draw the one who's singing these words into a place of worship. It is David utilizing creativity to bring us into a place where we admire the work of God. And Psalm 37 is no different. So David begins his reminiscing with these words. We look at the first verse. Fret not yourself, David says, because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. This is how he starts. But come on, David. You telling me not to worry about these guys? Look. Look around, man. Look at how successful they are. Look at how much influence these people are having. Look at how much they're able to enjoy life, and I'm barely able to scrape by. Come on, David. Well, I've got a few words to talk about with David's advice. Do not fret. David says this three times in his psalm. He says it in the first verse, and he'll say it again in verse 7 and verse 8. And this phrase, this word that David, ha- that David uses that says, do not fret, or fret not yourselves, is actually a Hebrew phrase that means to burn. And, and, and when, we kinda, when we look at it in its context right here, um, you, we have to understand a little bit about the Hebrew language. The, the Hebrew language has these words or these phrases um, that, that draw from something, and a lot of times those words don't have a modifier for themselves. Um, And so you have to use a context to kind of bring out the meaning of this. And this one's no different. And so for this word, for this phrase, do not fret, what the the literal meaning of this is when you use the context around it is, it means do not boil up or do not slowly come to a boil or to a burn. And we all know what that's like, don't we? That we can feel that slowly rising, this slow burn that comes to where we are at some point going to explode, and it's probably not going to be directed at the thing that deserves our boil, is it? And this is what he says, do not fret. Now, when he says this, he's saying, do not work yourself to a slow burn or boil. And the reason why he says this is because four different times in this psalm, he says, because those people, which he calls the wicked or the evildoers, four times he says are going to be cut off. At some point, they're going to be cut off, so don't worry about it. Now, one reason I think that we get into this type of irritation is that we assume that we know how to run the world better than God does. 
Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room that will lean over to the person next to him and say, hey, listen, I've got a better idea than God does about running the world. I don't think we'd ever say that. But man, the way that we operate within how we believe surely indicates that sometimes, doesn't it? That we get to this big burn here that, God, you're doing nothing. Our burning is a reflection of our impatience with God's ways um, because it's more than, it, uh, than just an irritation uh, of somebody else. And we, it comes out in phrases like this, God, why do you let this happen? God, aren't you going to do anything about this? Lord, you talk a big game, but where are you right now? And we do this without considering or knowing what it is that he's actually up to. Boy, we love righteous anger, don't we? Or at least that's what we like to call our anger. None of us gets angry about anything and we call our own anger sinful, do we, in the moment? We all believe that when we're angry, it's righteous anger. Our favorite way to view Jesus sometimes is the one that's turning over the tables, isn't it? In those couple of verses by ignoring all the other verses that are around it. We like that. We like to justify our anger with this. We've got a rule of thumb for discerning what righteous anger is from sinful anger. If I'm angry about injustice done toward others, it may be righteous anger. Now, this anger should motivate me to take appropriate action on the behalf of those victims. But if I'm angry about an injustice done toward me, it is possible that it's sinful anger. Most anger is selfish, and therefore it is sinful, most of the time. But submitting to God when I see the bad guys winning means that I'm putting off my irritation. I'm putting off my envy. I'm putting off my anger. I suggest instead of running to righteous anger so many times like we are so prone to do, why don't we start first with righteous patience or righteous kindness and work our way from there? This, is, I think, is what David says. This is what he talks about, at least in that first verse. Do not fret yourself over the evildoers. Don't fret. Don't boil over to that. Okay, that sounds right. That sounds good. But come on, man. How do we do that? How do we do that? Because I don't know about you, my anger takes over sometimes. Well, I think we keep on paying attention to the one that's been there. I think we keep on paying attention to the one that has gone through this. David says, first, trust in the Lord. Look at verse three. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Man, trust in the Lord. That's what he calls us to do, but this trust comes with an activator, doesn't it? Trust is never idle in and of itself, but it always comes with action. The Hebrew word for trust actually comes with three elements with it. It comes with contentment, it comes with consent, and it comes with agreement. And so when we're, talking, when we're thinking about our own faith, when we're thinking about our own trust in the Lord, we've got to ask ourselves these questions. Do you believe God is the greatest good there is? That's contentment. Do you release your morality to him as the greatest good? That's our consent. And do you believe his way will ultimately win out? That's our agreement. That's prudent words when we're dealing with the immorality that's around us. Secondly, David says, we delight in the Lord. Look at verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Man, I think so many of us have a weird image of God. If I were to say, what does God look like? I think we think of things that are so bizarre, so weird sometimes. Like, so many people think of these chubby angels flying around this God who's ready to strike someone down with lightning and thunder. And that's not the God that's described in the Bible at all. But to be sure, he is holy, 
to be sure God is sovereign, he's exalted and awesome and not to be trifled with. But he's also the source of immense joy and perfection and grace and compassion and mercy. Richard Foster says that he is worth celebrating. He goes on to say that celebration comes when the common ventures of life are redeemed. Psalm 126.5 says that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. God is certainly a source of that. I read this, ver- this verse and I think of this time when my oldest child was still young enough to be in a high chair. And she'd play the game where she'd drop stuff off the high chair and watch mom and dad pick up the stuff and you put it back on and then she'd throw it back off and you reach down and pick it back up, that kind of thing. And she threw a spoon or something down one time. I went down to pick it up and when I pulled up, I smashed my head on the corner of the table and I shouted. She's like, dad, what's wrong? She's giggling the whole time. What's wrong? I said, "Uh, nothing, don't worry about it. Dad's just got some issues. And then all of a sudden she started crying. I'm like, what's wrong with you? She goes, I want issues too. I said, Jocelyn, I know your parents. You've got plenty of those, man. You're all right. You'll be all right. And when tears will turn to joy, this is the kind of God that we delight in. Now, delighting in God does not mean he's going to give you every material thing that you ever ask for or ever want. Delighting in God does mean, though, that when we delight in the Lord, that he becomes the desire of our heart, and so he gives us himself. He is our delight, and this is how we confront immorality. And thirdly, commit your way to the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Now, the word commit means to roll with, to roll yourself toward God. And our kind of human fallacy that I think our temptation is to have him roll toward us. We've got to guard ourselves with that. I think ultimately what David talks about, though, is that we take the long view. He calls us to take the long view in life. Don't just look at the here and now. Take the long view. Look at verses, verse 16 here. Verse 16 through 20 says, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. As we take the long view of things, that means that we start to look through uh, the world through the lens that God offers to us. And God gives us an eternal perspective on this. That the wicked may look like that they are succeeding now. Those who are doing things immorally may look like they are succeeding now. And even worse, those who are trying to do right may look like they're not getting ahead. But have an eternal perspective on this, the Lord says. What looks like restraint Uh, or excuse me, what looks like freedom and choice and independence, a lot of times it's just people who are feasting on fast food. And what looks like restraint and what looks like slow movement and what looks like the lack of progress and chaos, when we look look through the lens of the long view of God's sovereignty, really is going to be a simmering steak that we get to enjoy when it's all said and done. Ask ourselves, is my way really better than God's? Is God actually restraining me just to make my life harder? Or is he making my life better in the long run? If I look at the ones outside uh, of, of, of 
those that are doing things morally. And it looks like they get everything, even though uh, their wicked endeavors um, seem to be succeeding. Maybe it's important, maybe it's prudent, maybe I'm called to lean on the wise sage and one who has been through it like David, who has thrived in the long run of things, not just in the short. Look how he finishes his words, his words of wisdom to us all, starting in verse 35. He says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and uphold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked, and he saves them because they take refuge in him. That's David's invitation. That's his call to us to continue to take the long view, even if it's a little harder right now. It's what Psalm 37 has been encouraging us to do and what the child of God will experience. If he or she trusts in the Lord, delights in the Lord, commits your way to the Lord, and we do not fret the short term. The one who does those things will end as the psalm itself does with humble objectivity, reiterating that the Lord helps, delivers, and saves those who trust in him. Now, it's possible you're sitting there going, yeah, but I'm really not that kind of a humble person. It is not my nature to take a step back and view things like this. Well, perhaps not. Perhaps none of us are humble by nature, but we can be. If we commit our way to God, if we learn from him, and just as the psalm advises, or to put it the way that the New Testament says, when Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for you will find rest for your souls. This is what we get to do when we look at things through an eternal perspective as the psalm asks us to do. That's our invitation this morning. Maybe you are sitting here going, yeah, I am struggling with all the wrongs that are being done to me or the wrongs that seem to be succeeding around me. And we got some people at our decision points that would love to pray with you about that. But maybe this is the morning where you sit here and you go, I'm going to make the choice for the first time to step into the blessings that God has for me that will last for eternity rather than just for today. And if that's the decision you want to make, I encourage you to make your way to the decision point also. Will you stand as we sing this song?